Hi, and welcome to Authors Annotated, a Gwinnett County Public Library podcast. We chat with authors about their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. In this episode, I chat with William Kent Kruger, the award-winning author of the Cork O'Connor Mystery Series, which features books about a former sheriff who is part Irish and part Ojibwe. Kruger has received numerous awards for his writing, including the 2014 Edgar Award for Best Novel for his book, Ordinary Grace. His newest book is Fox Creek. Thank you to William Kent Kruger for being with us tonight, and thank you for taking the time out of your touring schedule to speak with me and to all of our viewers here today. It's a pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me. Before we get into your books, I did want to ask, since this is a library podcast, what are some of your earliest memories of libraries? Okay, here's a great story for you, Steve. Boy, did you offer me an open door here. <laughs> this this is a story I often share with folks at events. I have a special place in my heart for libraries, and here's a story to illustrate that. When I was 12 years old, that was the summer between my sixth and seventh grade year, I was a Boy Scout. And that was the summer I decided I was going to get my reading merit badge. Now, one of the requirements for the reading merit badge, at least back then, was that you had to spend some time volunteering at your local library. I was living in a small town in Ohio at that point, so I went to the library and I made the arrangements. And when the time came, I showed up to do my duty. Now, this was long before they had computerized check-in and check-out. I'm sure you, Steve, and I'm sure folks watching remember that, that little envelope thing that used to be glued inside the back cover of every book that had the check-in, check-out slip in it. So what they did was they put me to work date stamping the return books. They gave me this little black ink pad and a changeable rubber date stamp. And so for the first hour I was there, it was sort of ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. And after an hour of that, the, the librarian proceeded to walk my way and ask me a very librarian-esque question. She said, Kent, what do you like to read? <laughs> well, yeah, this to God truth was, I like to read comic books, but I didn't want to tell her that. So I, I considered lying, but there was that whole, a scout is trustworthy thing going on. So I told her the truth and without batting an eye, this wonderful librarian said, have you ever read the Count of Monte Cristo? I walked out of the library that day with that great Dumas classic under my arm, and it came back a couple of weeks later and checked out the Three Musketeers. And when I'd read everything that our library had by Dumas, I asked her, what should I read next? And this wonderful woman turned me on to H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and Arthur Conan Doyle and Jack London and Robert Louis Stevenson and all these guys who wrote these stories that were perfect for capturing a boy's heart and a boy's imagination. You know, I don't think of librarians just as people who keep the books on the shelves in the right order and maybe give us a hard time when we return them late. <laughs> I really do think of librarians in, in a very real way as important guides in our understanding of the world. And I think that's especially true when we're young and they guide us toward the books that help us understand ourselves better, our relationships with the world better. I am, librarians are, for my money, angels on this earth. Well, we appreciate that. Thank you so much. And I will say th these days, libraries have changed a little bit in that we have comics in the library now. So you, we, they could have directed you to those books and to the comics. <laughs> yeah, legitimate literature now. Yes. So when did you first start writing yourself? And who were some of those other authors that you liked as a child in addition to those ones? Once you started finding them for yourself, who did you find that you liked? Well, I've always been a reader. Blame my parents for that one. When I was a kid, I had parents who I hope, like everybody out there's parents, my parents read to me. As a child, I never went down for a nap. I never went to bed at night. 
without a story being read to me. So I grew up thinking of the world in terms of stories. And for whatever reason, I always wanted to be one of the storytellers. I can't, honestly, Steve, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to be a storyteller, when I thought that was what, that's what I was going to be. Not a doctor, not a lawyer, a storyteller. So I've always written. My father was a high school English teacher. And when I was, when I was growing up, I didn't read the mysteries that kids typically read when they're growing up because my father convinced me that mysteries were the poor stepchildren of literature. So I didn't read Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys when I was growing up before that librarian turned me on to H.G. Wells and all of the others. I really did read mostly comic books, even though my father was a high school English teacher. Oh, he did have me, I got to say this, he had me reading the Iliad and the Odyssey very early. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Never cared much for the Iliad, but boy, did I love the Odyssey. <laughs> but once I really started thinking seriously about being a writer, my father insisted I read Ernest Hemingway when I was 18 years old, and I fell madly in love with Hemingway. And so in the very early years of my journey as a writer, I tried to write the great American novel as Ernest Hemingway might have, stupid on so many levels. <laughs> So Hemingway influenced me early. John Steinbeck, his powerful sense of place, his sense of justice when it comes to those who are the underserved in our society. Here in Minnesota, you know, I read F. Scott Fitzgerald very early and absolutely loved particularly The Great Gatsby, of course. So those are some of the writers who have influenced me over the years. Do you remember what it was about, or still now, I guess, of what it was about Hemingway's writing that appealed to you? Is it just kind of the directness? <laughs> He's pretty direct. Yeah. yeah, it was the terseness of it. The fact that he wasted not a single word. I don't know how long it's been since you read A Farewell to Arms, but if you read the opening, when I taught creative writing, I would read the opening paragraph of A Farewell to Arms to my students to show how choosing exactly the right word in the right place, creates a powerful image, creates cadence. And uh, so, yeah, that's what I loved about him. You know, I have to be honest with you, in my older years now, <laughs> as I go back and I reread Hemingway, some of his novels still hold up as well for me as they did when I was younger. They feel a little dated to me. But The Old Man in the Sea, I still think, is one of the finest pieces of writing to come out of the American canon. And his short stories. We'll continue to love his short stories. Yep. Yeah. I'm a sucker for a good short stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then one of the things that I learned from Hemingway is it's what you don't say is just as important and sometimes even more so than what you do say. Yep. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. Sometimes it's the reader can then fill in yeah. those gaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit, of course, about your new book, Fox Creek. And the first thing, though, is I have to, I think, scold you a little bit on behalf of fans in that the 2018, at the end of Desolation Mountain, a character had a vision of a beloved character's death. And then you had a standalone book come out, which was good, but it wasn't the conclusion of that story. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, look, it's a new Cork O'Connor book. But it was a prequel, so it didn't continue that story. <laughs> but now you're here, and that vision of the death was Henry Mello, who was one of the most beloved characters in the series. And, of course, no spoilers or anything, but can you give us the basic story of Fox Creek? And did you have any of that in mind when you wrote that last scene in the, of the vision initially? Yeah, you know, when I'm doing a, a book, I'm on a long tour now. 
for Fox Creek. And when I do events and I speak and read, I will typically begin by reading the final lines from Desolation Mountain, simply to remind readers of the really uh, unfortunate situation that I left Henry Malou in. For those watching who might not know what we're talking about, at the end of Desolation Mountain, both Cork O'Connor's son, Stephen, who has visions, and Henry Malou have both had a vision of Henry's death. And that's where I left that particular novel. But I got to tell you, honestly, Steve, I didn't know what to do with that situation. <laughs> no idea how I was going to deal with that. And, you know, it's taken me about four years, you can see, to <laughs> figure out how to handle it. Fox Creek is really Henry Malou's book. His voice is not one of those that tell the story. It's really all about what Henry offers to everyone else in that story. So here's the kind of the down and dirty on Fox Creek. A stranger, a woman named Dolores Morriso, has come to Crow Point seeking the help of Henry Malou and also his great niece, Rini Bissonette, who is Cork's wife. They are both healers. Although she doesn't realize it, she's being followed by a group of ruthless mercenaries who believe she possesses information important to people in powerful places. In order to avoid capture, Henry Malou leads these women deep into the boundary waters where he has to use all of his wiles to try to evade these ruthless men. No, Cork O'Connor, of course, when he understands the situation, leaps in pursuit, but darkness descends, along with a late winter snowstorm blocking his way. And as Cork enters, the longest, darkest night of his soul, his greatest fear is that he will not be able to save the people he loves. But the real question at the heart of Fox Creek is this. Will this be Henry Malou's final journey into the beloved wilderness he has called home for more than a century? We are not going to answer that on this call. Henry. That's right. Book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this Tenderland and Lightning Strike were both very good, but you're saying that they were stalling techniques for you to figure out <laughs> what yeah. happens to Henry. Not necessarily stalling <laughs> techniques. I, you know, I had been at work already on this yeah. Tenderland for quite a while. But Lightning Strike, I have to admit, was a, maybe a little bit of a stalling technique. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with that. Lightning um, Strike was a neat little different thing to see. I mean, you get to see Cork as a kid and see his dad as the sheriff and all these different things that you've heard little yep. bits about throughout the series, but bring it for together. Those, yeah. For those who are, who are watching who don't know what we're talking about, last year's book, Lightning Strike, is a prequel. It takes place in the early 1960s when Cork is an adolescent. And what that allowed me to do is across the course of the series, I have often made mention of people and incidents in Cork's earlier life that were important in helping shape him into the man who occupies center stage in this series. And my agent for years has been telling me, this is really rich territory, Ket. You need to mine it. And so I decided to mine that territory instead of dealing with Henry <laughs> But I was glad I did, Steve. I was glad I did. I enjoyed the opportunity to see Cork, to imagine Cork as a young man, and to explore more deeply the important relationship he had with his father, that his parents had with each other, that he had with his mother, all of that. It was just a terrific experience. And when I finished that, I was ready to move on and figure out what the hell's going on with Henry Malou. Well, I think it fits in with, I think, one of the ongoing things, I think, in your books, in this series in particular, but all your books, is family, is the importance of family, especially yeah. to Cork as a character. It's so important to him to protect and have his family be whole. So that getting that piece of with his father, since his father has passed away already when the series starts, that's a really important piece of the puzzle, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. 
And, you know, I'm glad that you point that out. Family is significantly a part of what I write about, not only in, in the Cork O'Connor series, but in my standalones, Ordinary Grace in This Tender Land, because I'm fascinated by what family is, you know? How do we create family? Is it all about bloodlines, genetics, or are there more dynamic elements involved in creating families? And I like exploring the forces that seek to divide families as well as the forces that unite them. And I find that an endless source of inspiration in my work. So if you didn't know what was going to happen with Henry, how did you get started once you decided, okay, this is going to be Henry's story? What was kind of the initial germ of the idea that kind of finally got you going with Fox Creek? Okay, so, so here's the truth, you know. A mystery is one of the most tightly woven fabrics of storytelling that there is. Everything depends so significantly on everything else. So typically. When I'm going to write a story in the Coco Connor series, I try to think that story through as completely as I can before I ever put my fingers to the keyboard. At the end of that thinking process, which can take weeks or sometimes even months, I know how the story begins. I know how it ends. I know who did what to whom and why. I know the themes I want to weave into the story. But Fox Creek was a horse of an entirely different color. Honest to God, Steve, I had no idea what I was going to do with this story when I entered it. <laughs> I wrote the beginning scene in which Cork is flipping burgers at Sam's place. And this guy comes up and tries to hire him to find his wife. And it's a pretty hinky situation. And Cork recognizes that. And I thought, well, this is a great scene. Now what happens? <laughs> I had no idea. And so I just kind of hope that if there's this guardian angel that perches on a writer's shoulder and, and helps move him or her along, that my guardian angel would guide me. And, and you know, I got to say, that's exactly what happened. I really loved the place that my guardian angel took me for Fox Creek, a story that I had no idea what I was going to do with. In the end, I'm really, really happy with, really pleased with all of the things I was able to weave into this story. That's great. So is that much different than your normal writing process? I mean, do you have that, not a strict outline maybe, but you know the beginning, middle, and end usually before you even get started generally? At least for the Cork O'Connor stories, because I never want to wake up in the middle of the night going, oh, what's going to happen next? Oh, have I ridden myself into a corner? Oh. And if I think the story through, that that really doesn't happen to me. Happened a few times with Fox Creek. It's really an uncomfortable feeling, let me tell you. But when I'm writing uh, one of my standalones, you know, mystery is an intellectual construct. You're creating a puzzle. And so your mind is working to make sure all the corners fit exactly. Everything fits neatly into this box that you're creating. My standalones come from a different place. They come from my heart. And so... Approaching the writing of Ordinary Grace and This Tenderland and the standalone that's coming out next year, a book that will be called The River We Remember, I was seeking a process that the reader could tell from the way I was giving them the story that this is a different kind of story. This is coming from this guy's heart. So I knew very little about those Ordinary Grace or This Tenderland when I began the writing. I knew a few essential elements, but then I let the story reveal itself to me as I wrote it. And I got to tell you, Steve, um, really, those were two of the easiest manuscripts I've ever composed <laughs> and two of the most memorable creative experiences I've ever had. I just, I loved it. But when I, with Fox Creek, <laughs> When I tried the same process, oh my God, was that uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to, I was about to ask if that helped prepare you for Fox Creek, but I, I guess not maybe. <laughs> not at all. No. Except that 
It may, maybe it convinced me that I could trust my instincts. You know, I've been a storyteller for a very long time. And so maybe trust my instincts and the story will unfold as it's supposed to from this storyteller's mind of mine. Well, and with the Cork O'Connor series, you've been writing these characters for so long and you know them really well at this point. And so you can kind of throw a situation at them and you know how they're going to react, I would assume, a lot of times. Or do they surprise you sometimes? Well, you know, the foundation is there. I understand their motivations, what's important to them, the things they're afraid of, the things they hold to, uh, the people they want to protect. Uh, all of those are there. But when you put, when I, particularly in Fox Creek, when I put the uh, characters in particular situations, I really wasn't sure what the outcome was going to be until after I had written the scene. I learned a lot about Rainy Bissonette, Cork's wife, and the depth of her courage. I learned a lot about Cork's fears. You know, Cork, Cork is ogijita. For those of you out there who don't know it, it's an Ojibwe word that typically is used to mean warrior. But many of my friends in the Ojibwe community have explained to me that a more apt explanation for the word is one who stands between evil and his people. And Cork is ogijita. And so it's Important for Cork across the series to stand between evil and the people he loves and protects. In this story, his, his greatest fear was just that he wasn't going to be able to do that. And I won't tell you how that plays out, but, you know, he's not all that great at it in a particular <laughs> novel. <laughs> Well, I mean, th this is a little bit of a different one in that it's written in a different tense than most of your books are right. written. And then also there's the... Shifting perspectives. Normally, we're mostly following Cork throughout most of the other books. But this one, we're getting different sections. We're getting Cork sections and Rainy sections and Stephen sections and a new character that readers can learn about. Why did you decide to take that approach to this book? Do you know, when I wrote that initial scene with Cork flipping burgers in, the, in Sam's place, his burger joint, it kind of came to me as present tense. And I thought, this is really interesting. I have never written a story in present tense, but I had a sense that I was going to be writing what was more a thriller this time around than a pure mystery. And I knew then the element of suspense was going to be even more important in this kind of story. And if you write a story in past tense, everything is already done. You know, somebody made it to the other side. But if you're writing a story in present tense and the reader is there as things are happening and you have no idea who's going to be there at the end of the outcome, it is a more visceral kind of suspense, I believe. And so I began writing it with that first scene, and then I liked that, and I just continued on. And I was really happy with the kind of energy, different kind of energy that that gave this particular novel. I'm not sure I'll do it again, or it'll probably be a while before I'll do it again, but I really appreciated that. Now, the shifting point of view allowed me to explore more deeply the motivations of characters, get inside their minds so that, you know, it's not really the limited, distanced third-person voice that you're hearing. It is a more intimate voice. You are inside hearing what they're thinking. And I liked that as well because what's going on inside each of these characters is just as important as what's happening outside, how what's happening outside is changing them inside. Yeah, I liked the attention that Stephen got in this book, not just because I'm a Stephen too, but <laughs> he seemed to grow a lot just within this one book. And we learned a lot more about him. You know, it's a journey for a number of the characters. Stephen, certainly. And I got to tell you, in the earlier books in the series, I had Stephen on a particular path. But when I wrote 
Stephen's participation in this particular story, I think Stephen's path is changing. I think going forward, things are going to happen for Stephen that I had never imagined and probably Stephen <laughs> had never imagined since I created him. And it's a journey for Cork, certainly a journey for Rainey as she discovers things about herself. And that new character who's been introduced into this series, The Wolf, boy, what a great journey for that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I look forward to hearing more about his story too. So You will, you will. And Stephen's a long way from little Stevie from <laughs> early on. <laughs> so for those of you who are watching who are not that familiar with my series, the 19 books in this series span 15 years in the lives of the characters involved. When I began writing this series, I imagined Cork as a man of about 40, and now I'm writing him, he's 55. Stevie, little Stevie, was five years old when I wrote that first book. He's now 21. And so all of the characters have aged and changed and their relationships to each other, how they see themselves in the world has all changed. So whenever I'm asked, so what book should I start with? I'm always going, well, start with the first. (laughs) For all of the reasons I've talked about, it's just a much richer experience if you begin at the beginning and read it through in order. That said, every writer of a long-running series understands that a reader may come to your work in the 12th or the 15th or the 19th book. So you can't rely on a reader's awareness, understanding of the history involved for that story to be satisfying. You have to make that story satisfying within the covers of that particular novel. You have to make it approachable, but then also for people who have been in the series the entire time to also kind of move those, I wouldn't say to the point of subplots, but I mean, just that character arc. It is a thin line that you walk when you're trying to not give, not overload a reader with backstory, but give enough of a sense that a reader is not lost. You know, honestly, I depend upon my editor in large measure to help guide me along that. Well, along those lines, I was going to ask, spoilers free here, um, but various characters throughout the series have died or been killed off, <laughs> including <laughs> some main characters that you may not think. Obviously, I mean, it's sort of the Cork O'Connor series, so he's going to be okay <laughs> throughout the series, but anybody else is up for grabs. And I just wonder, when I was thinking about that, especially when I was rereading the first book, there's a character in there that I really fell in love with and was like, oh, and you could kind of see the it coming, right? Person. And that's just ch- chapter where it happens. You can feel it coming like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> she was the nicest person in the whole story. Like, yeah, I, yeah. But I was wondering, I wanted to ask, how do you feel as the author when you've decided or the story has decided or that this character needs to die? How does that feel to you? You know, I'm glad you put it that way, that the story has decided that character needs to die. I'm going to tell you two stories in that regard. I'm going to start with the story of Molly dying on the ice in the opening book in the series, Iron Lake. Uh, Molly is Cork's love interest in that. Cork and his wife are separated. They're having marital difficulties. And Cork has formed a relationship with an absolutely wonderful woman named Molly Nermy. That was my first novel. Uh, it was a mystery. And uh, from what I knew about reading mysteries was is that you are supposed to put the the hero or heroine's love interest in danger. It's a trope. And the hero or heroine is supposed to save that love interest. So I do all my writing at coffee shops very early in the morning. And so I was writing in the coffee shop, approaching this scene where I knew Molly was going to be in jeopardy. And I found myself putting off the writing of that scene. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And finally, I thought, is it because Corp doesn't save her? Is that maybe what you're bulking at? So I went to the broiler cafe where I was writing that morning and sat down. And I decided I was going to write 
the scene in which Molly would be in jeopardy. And however I wrote it was though it was supposed to be. And I wrote the scene in which Molly dies on the ice. Now, as I was writing that scene, the waitress who always served me my coffee came and she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, Cantor, you all right? Because tears were streaming down my face. It really hurt me to kill Molly, but it was, it was what the story demanded. And so I did it. But you pointed out something in your comments just a moment ago that I realized about Molly's death and that has served the, the whole series well. If you have a central protagonist in a series like this, the truth is you don't really get a lot of distance putting your protagonist in jeopardy because the astute reader knows that you're going to pull his or her ass out of the fire because they got to be there in the next book. But people who have read Iron Lake and know that I killed Molly understand that although Cork is safe, anybody around him, even those he loves deeply, are not. They might not make it to the end of the story. And that's really where the true suspense comes into play. So that was that death. The other death of the really significant character in the series, here's the story behind that one, Steve. When I finished the first draft of that manuscript for that story, that character was still alive because that's what I wanted. And then I read the first draft as a whole piece for the first time, start to finish, to make sure that all of the elements were in place, that the arc of the energy was good, that the beginning worked and the ending worked. The ending didn't work. It was the ending I wanted, but I could see clearly at that point, it wasn't the ending really the story had been set up for. It wasn't the ending the story wanted. And, you know, every good storyteller understands that at some point a story does take on an energy of its own. And you have to be willing to step back and let that story go wherever it wants to, despite the consequences. So I wrote the ending with that character dying because it was the right ending for the story. Uh, even knowing that I was going to disappoint a lot of readers, and I got to tell you, I did. I have never been called a bastard so many times in my life. Steve, I can't tell you the number of emails that began something like this. Dear Mr. Krieger, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, poor, poor Cork. Just Poor Cork. Yeah, we beat the hell out of Cork. It's what you do. A lot of your books, all of the books, I guess, have some sort of native representation in them. It's a large community up there in Minnesota where you are. How do you approach that to ensure that you're being authentic about everything? Yeah, that's a really good question. Every time I sit down to write a novel in the Cork O'Connor series, I have no native blood in me whatsoever, no native heritage. But I'm painfully aware that I'm a white guy trespassing in a culture not my own. So I work very hard to get it right. When I made the decision to include the Ojibwe as an element of the Cork O'Connor, or the stories, I didn't know it was going to be the Cork O'Connor series, but of the work that I did in the North Country, I took a really good look at the North Country of Minnesota, and I realized you can't tell a true story set up there without including the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg, as an element of the work, because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's powerful. When I, so I decided I was going to make the Ojibwe an element of my work. What did I know about them when I made that decision? About what every white person knows about the native cultures we live shoulder to shoulder with, nothing. But it was a cultural anthropology major in college, and the idea of learning about this culture was fitting to me. And I began in the way all good academics began. I began by reading. I read everything I could get my hands on. And in the course of my research, I began to meet members of the Ojibwe community and form relationships that have become important friendships to me across all these years. 
I rely on my Native friends for their perceptions, their guidance, their insights, their encouragement. A number of the stories that I've written in the Cork O'Connor series surround issues that were suggested to me by my friends in the community. Whenever I have a manuscript finished, and if deadlines will allow, I always give it to at least one, but usually two of my Ojibwe friends to read and vet for me. So I haven't said anything that's stupid or even worse, offensive. So I, I take it very seriously. And I have to tell you honestly that without exception, every Native reader who has contacted me or with whom I've spoken personally have been complimentary in terms of how they feel like I have dealt with their culture. I got an email that went something like this a while back. Dear Mr. Kruger, I am the tribal librarian for the Lawrence Reservation, which is on the UP of Michigan. Whenever any of our folks come in and they're not quite sure what they want to read, I will often recommend your work because for a white guy, you do a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> At least I didn't call you a name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <people> work. <laughs> do you still feel like the character of Cork, is he still coming to terms with his identity? I know early in the series, especially, he still kind of goes back and forth a little bit with struggling with being being yeah right right and looking almost entirely white well he is not white enough for the whites nor native enough for the native population and you know i have friends who are in fact of mixed heritage and they feel that way as well it's a difficult position for them to be in many of my friends who are of mixed heritage grew up basically in the white culture and are only now embracing the, their native heritage and they're learning their language and they are trying to understand much better the rich tradition out of which that part of their heritage comes and we get that with that new character that appears in this in fox creek too where he's sort of still exploring his identity as well yeah yeah i mean he understands that he is native but he has no idea what his tribal affiliation is and so he creates his connections. So certainly Henry, the character feels this way and many other characters feel this way, but the environment, nature, the outdoors, they all feel very alive in your books, almost like that they're their own character. <laughs> and I would just, the way I was thinking of that to ask you about this is how does being outdoors make you feel and how do you infuse that feeling into your books? You know, I defy anyone to spend time I was going to say in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness here in Minnesota. But you can spend time anywhere outside your house. You can go to a park. You can take a bike ride along a river. And I defy you to experience that and come back not refreshed, not regenerated. There is something about our connection with the natural world that is so <clears throat> refreshing, so necessary, I think to our well-being, to our souls. It feeds our souls, Steve. You know this. Every, everybody really knows this, and yet we don't take the time to make sure that we make those connections. Here in Minnesota, one of the reasons, I'm not native to Minnesota. I didn't move here until I was about 30 years old, and I was a gypsy kid before that, lived all over the place. But the minute my wife and I set foot in Minnesota, I knew I'd found home. I love this place and its people. And one of the things I love about it is the natural setting here. You can go up North Minnesota and experience the great North country, you know, Paul Bunyan territory, tall pines and crystal clear lakes and fast running water. You go to Southern Minnesota and it's the agrarian beauty of the Midwest, which is, you know, I spent my adolescence in the Midwest. So the tall corn and the soybeans and the gently rolling hills down there and the hollows, all of those appeal, the beauty of those appeal to me. And there's nature everywhere. 
And everywhere we go, if you really open yourself to it, you are fed. And I try to give that sense then, not only in the Corporal Connor series, but also in the standalones that take place in Southern Minnesota, Ordinary Grace in this tender land. Yeah, and characters like Henry are talking about just, he keeps trying to remind Cork a lot of times of just be quiet and let the wood speak to you and they will, but you're just, you got to clear your head and that's what we all need to do, I think. Yeah, the character of a little loop at one point, who is just a fascinating character for me, says people are so intent on being, not doing, they need to to be more intent on just being. So as we've mentioned, this is the 19th book in the series, and we've kind of established that Cork is the one who will survive <laughs> throughout. <laughs> he may get beaten up quite a bit, but he'll survive. <laughs> How would you say that he's changed since the beginning? Because this is not a series like some things of where every book you jump in and they're the exact same character as they were before. This isn't like Charlie Brown, where you can jump in 50 years later and <laughs> it's the exact same character. When I used to teach mystery writing, one thing I would teach my students is this. If you were going to attempt to create a series with a central protagonist, I think you only have two choices in the kind of protagonist you can create. You can create a static protagonist or you can create a dynamic protagonist. What's a static protagonist? That's somebody who never changes. Somebody who's the same book to book to book. Think Sherlock Holmes here. You've read one Sherlock Holmes story, he's going to be the same guy in every story you read after that. What's a dynamic protagonist? That's somebody who does change, somebody who ages, somebody for whom what happens in one book in the series is reflected in subsequent entries in how that character responds to the world. So as I mentioned earlier, Cork was 40 when the series began. He's 55 now. His children were younger. And as they have grown and as they have experienced life, They've changed. Their perceptions, their understandings of themselves and the world have changed. Cork has so often fought against the fact that he is a man who does violence. And he does violence to protect those he loves. He's Ogijita. But he has fought against being Ogijita so many times. At one point in one of the books in the series, he participates in a really violent episode. And he gets rid of his firearms and vows never to carry a gun again. But a few books later, he's carrying a gun because that's what he has to do. He has to embrace that this is who I am and violence is a part of what I do. So Cork has changed. But you know, I mean, there is that aspect of him. And yet he's a loving father and a loving grandfather, a loving husband. Cork is a really good example of the fact that there are many parts to every human being. We are so complex. So you said your next book is going to be a standalone. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Sure. It's called The River We Remember. Let me set the stage here. For most of my life, I've been known as the author of the Cork O'Connor series, the New York Times bestselling Cork O'Connor mystery series. But about 13 years ago, a story idea came to me that wasn't a Cork O'Connor story. And when I proposed the project to my publisher, they didn't want it. But it was a story that spoke to me in such a compelling way. I knew I had to write it. And across the course of the next three years, without a contract, I composed the manuscript for Ordinary Grace. Now, even though my publisher told me they didn't want it, when I finished the manuscript, I went ahead and sent it to my editor at Simon & Schuster. She fell in love with it. They published it. And uh, Ordinary Grace has had just this really remarkable, really gratifying reception from critics and readers alike. It won tons of awards when it came out. It's been translated into more than two dozen foreign languages. So far, it's sold about a million copies. And when my publisher saw how well that book was doing, boy, did they want another book just like it. So I signed a contract for 
a companion novel. They paid me a boatload of money. And I spent the next two years writing what I thought would be the companion novel to Ordinary Grace. That manuscript, Steve, was was due to contractually due to my publisher seven years ago. Two months before that contractual deadline, I set up a meeting in Chicago to talk to my agent about revisions to the piece because there were problems with it. I knew it. She knew it. Two days before we got together, I sent her a note saying, when we meet, I don't want to talk about how we revise this piece. I want to talk about how we keep it from being published because it wasn't the story I'd imagined it would be. I had no idea how to make it that story. And frankly, my heart wasn't in it. My publisher turned out to be very understanding. They said, fine, you don't have to give us this manuscript, but you still owe us a companion novel. So here's what was going on. The the expectations for that follow-up novel were enormous. And the whole time I was trying to write it, I just felt crushed by the weight of all those expectations. And the truth is, when I was writing the piece, what I was doing was trying to meet everybody else's expectations. Instead of writing the story, that spoke to me from my heart. But as soon as all that weight got lifted off my shoulders and I was free, I saw so clear to this story, I should have been writing the story that did speak to me from my heart. And that story became this tender land. So during the pandemic, which was tragic for so many people, it created so much chaos. For me, it was one of the most productive periods I've ever had as a writer. And I think that's because I wasn't out there crossing the country doing events. During the pandemic, I wrote the manuscript for Lightning Strike, last year's novel. I wrote the manuscript for Fox Creek, this year's novel. I wrote four novellas, and then I ran out of ideas. And so I turned back to some of the projects I'd put on hold in the past, and I picked up that manuscript that was contractually due seven years ago and began to read it. And as I read it, I realized I know how to tell this story now. Um... So that's what I've been at work on for the last eight months, revising that manuscript to become the novel, The River We Remember. In Ordinary Grace, I dealt peripherally with the issue of men like my father. My father, at 18, joined the service and marched away to fight in World War II. He was a kid, went away a kid, and he came back several years later, a man wounded in many, many ways. And he was just like the father of all of my friends, the fathers of my friends. These men had had gone away to fight in World War II or to the Korean conflict at 18 or 19 years of age, just kids. And they came back men, terribly wounded by the things they'd seen and the things that they'd done. And so I wanted to delve more deeply into the, the question of how did these people heal? How did they manage to heal themselves, those who did, when they came back? And what about the people they left behind who loved them, their wives, their mothers, their sisters, and who fought their own battles and were wounded in their own ways? How did they all manage to help each other heal? And although although the river we remember is really a mystery, I mean, it's really a true mystery, a true whodunit, it's really at heart about all of that. How do we heal from these terrible wounds? How do we help each other? heal from these terrible wounds. I am so excited about this book. Like Ordinary Grace in this Tender Land, it takes place in southern Minnesota rather than northern Minnesota of the Cork O'Connor series. And like those two novels, it took place in 1961. This Tender Land took place in 1932. The River We Remember takes place in 1958. Well, I think we'll all look forward to that one. Uh, and then, of course, your Quark fans are going to kill me if I don't ask, is the next book after that a Quark O'Connor mystery? <laughs> yeah, I have two more books in the Quark O'Connor series under contract. I am currently, I know the issue that's going to be at the heart 
of the next Work O'Connor novel. And I'm currently in my long thinking process, putting the mystery to surround that issue. I've just started the thinking, and it's probably going to be several weeks before I really have put that whole story together. It should be published in the fall of, I know it sounds like a long time, fall of 2024. So 2023 is the river we remember. The fall of 2024 is the next Cork O'Connor novel. So you're not going to be one of those authors that comes out with a book like every other week or something? (laughs) (laughs) Nor am I ever going to have anybody else write my books for me. (laughs) At least while I'm alive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for the last question before I get to the questions from the audience, of which there are a few there, just a quick Fun one, I think. We mentioned, or we talked a little bit before we started recording of that you that your books are part of a little subgenre of mysteries that I like a lot of native characters and themes and situations like Tony Hillerman and Margaret yeah. Cole and Craig Johnson. And my question, which is just really quick, is do you think Cork and Walt Longmire would get along? You know, I know Craig Johnson very, very well. And I love the Longmire series. And I could definitely see Cork and Walt sitting down and talking over a couple of glasses of beer. Walt would drink Olympia, Cork would would drink Line and Kugels. (laughs) But they would connect with with each other, I think. They have a lot of things in common. (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, let me get to the questions from the audience here. So first one here is from Mary. So I've only read three of your books, but hope to read them all before too long. What made you decide to jump back in time to Cork at 12 years old? And do you think you will do more of that timeline jumping? Thank you, Mary. It was an interesting divergence from how I typically approach stories. And again, I don't know if I said this, I did it at the urging of my agent. For years, she had been encouraging me to, because, you know, I often make mention of the characters and the events that have influenced Cork significantly. And she has been urging me for years to mine that rich territory. And because I didn't really know how to do it with Henry Malou's situation, I decided to go ahead and do that. I don't know that I'm going to do quite that again. I may go back and spend some more time exploring an earlier period in Cork's life. The time that he spent in Chicago when he was a cop there, a beat cop there, where he met his wife, Joe, is a time frame I may, I've gone back a couple of times, but I may go back and explore that a little more deeply. So I don't know. Life is long. Who knows? <laughs> and Mary had another question that you answered a little bit, but you might have something more to say. Do you have any family history with Native American tribes or do you just do a lot of research and they love the historical features that you include in your stories? Yeah, you know, I appreciate when I hear from white reader. Well, actually, I've heard from Native readers as well that I offer them information that they were ignorant of before. When I wrote This Tender Land, which opens in a Native American boarding school, one of those terrible, terrible environments that the Native people had to endure for almost a century. I got so many letters, emails, notes from readers saying I had no idea about the terrible things that we had perpetrated on these Native kids. And that was not a part of my agenda, but I was happy to hear that I had opened a lot of eyes in that respect. It's not uncommon at all for me to get a note from someone saying, you know, I had no idea about any of the culture of Native people. Thank you for opening my eyes. I've had people write to me and say, you know, I had pretty stereotypic images of Natives and you have helped open my eyes there. I really appreciate hearing that. It's not 
it's not that I set out to do that, but I do try to give, what I try to point out to people is this, you know, native, native communities suffer. Native men sometimes drink too much or involved in substance abuse. Native men sometimes are abusive to their wives and their children. Native men sometimes aren't particularly interested in looking for jobs. But there are white guys who drink too much and are involved in substance abuse. There are white guys who abuse their wives and their children. There are white guys who are not particularly eager to go out and seek employment. And we don't say it's because they're white. And so I just try to point out that the Native people are human beings. They love and they hate and they grieve and they, and they desire and they have aspirations, just like all of us. There are Native doctors and Native lawyers and Native plumbers and Native electricians. I mean, they're just people. And they come out of a particular cultural perspective. And that's it. And we won't talk about it because it's kind of the some of the solution to the mystery in Fox Creek, but there is a big issue that has historical roots in Fox Creek as well of what's going on with the powerful people. But again, we won't say what that is, but that there is some, yeah, at the heart of it, some history there again. Yeah, at the heart of it is another incident in which Native people got screwed over royally. Amy asks, how do you choose your characters' names? Oh, Amy, that's, oh, that's sort of a hodgepodge. <laughs> Honestly, the best characters come to you with the names come to you with the character themselves. When the character sort of pops into your imagination, a name comes along with that character. And those are the best names. So Cork O'Connor, for example. Okay. Here's where Cork came from. Long before I knew I was going to write any kind of a story, I just had in mind a, a guy that I might want to write about. And in those early days, all I knew about this character was that he was going to be the kind of guy who was so resilient that no matter how far life pushed him down, he would always bob back to the surface and his name was going to be Cork. Swear to God. You know, I told that to an audience a couple of days ago. Some wise ass in the audience said, why didn't you just call him Bob? <laughs> so Cork was there from the very beginning. And then when I uh, decided to make Cork of mixed heritage and that his Euro heritage would be Irish, Cork became very naturally Corcoran, Liam O'Connor. Henry Malou, he was always Henry Malou. I can't even tell you why, but Henry Malou came when he stepped out of the blizzard in that first book I wrote, he was Henry Malou. Don't know why. I have taken names from gravestones. Honestly, I have taken names from exit signs on the freeway. <laughs> when I'm going to write a native character, I will often go to some of the online resources, you know, what's happening in Indian country right now on particular reservations. And I will look for names that strike me as really good names to use. So they come from all kinds of places. And then Amber has a couple of questions. The first one is, do you think you might focus on another ongoing character as a potential central character for a future Cork O'Connor novel in the same way that you kind of focused on Henry Malou in Fox Creek? Do you know, Cork's children are beginning to play more and more important roles in each of the stories. And so I can see a time when one of the other of the children is going to be at the heart of a story and Cork will play a peripheral role in that. 
so it might evolve that way. I can't, I can't tell you for sure right now. Well, that sounds like, again, like you mentioned earlier, Stephen's role is kind of changing in the way that you thought it might go. So who knows what's going to happen with Jenny and everybody else in the future. So there you go. And then Amber's other question was four short stories written during the pandemic. Where can we readers get our hands on them? Well, they're not short stories. They're novellas, much longer than a short story. They are each well over 100 pages. The first of those novellas, a novella called The Levy, is actually going to be coming out as an audiobook original from Simon & Schuster this spring. We're just working now on who the reader is going to be. I got audition tapes for a number of readers, and my agent and I kind of ranked them. So we're going to see who the reader will be for this. But it's... uh, it's, I really, really, really love this novella. So you can look for that one this spring as an audiobook original. We haven't yet decided what we're going to do with the other three novellas, whether we're going to put them together as a single piece or what, it, or maybe we'll string them out again. I really don't know, but they were fun and they really, they were refreshing and they filled the gap between books. And are, are they all just original stories or any of them yep. within the Quark universe or anything? Or No, nope, they're all original. They're all very different. The levee takes place during the great Mississippi flooding of 1929, 27, at any rate, way back when, when the Mississippi River was 80 miles wide at Vicksburg. So it takes place then. One is contemporary. The other is sort of floating in time. And the other one is a very Stephen Kingish sort of a story. Well, that's another one of those that I love his shorter work. Yep, so do I. And no offense to his big bricks that he writes <laughs> too, but I do like his shorter ones. They made great doorstops. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all of the questions that we have in there. So thank you, Kent, for talking to me. Oh, <laughs> Steve, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Authors Annotated, a podcast from Gwinnett County Public Library about authors, their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. And thanks again to William Kent Kruger for the great conversation. You can find out more about the library's podcasts at gwinnettpl.org slash podcasts or follow them in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening. Connect, learn, and grow with your Gwinnett County Public Library.